Lord, we thank you for giving us an opportunity to open your word this morning, to commune with you, to connect with you, and to allow you to give us some guidance on how we can best adapt to the changes that are happening on a daily basis in our lives. There are many people around who have no hope, who have no anchor, and who are swayed left and right by the changing times. We want to be able to anchor our faith, our beliefs, our emotions, who we are in something solid. And so we turn this morning to your word. We ask that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are indeed in a time of change, significant change. And change has happened, well, ever since creation. There has always been change. But sometimes changes that we face are unpleasant. And how do we deal with them? Change has been a topic that people have been talking about for hundreds, for thousands of years. In fact, not too many years ago, a book was published called Who Moved My Cheese? Uh, how to Deal with Change. It says an amazing way to deal with change in your work and in your life. It has become a best-selling book. It's the number one bestseller on change written by Spencer Johnson, MD. I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail on what the book uh, is all about other than to say it's a very easy read. It's less than 100 pages and if you were to sit down you could probably read it in less than 45 minutes. Some practical things that can help us learn how to deal with change. It was published on September 8, 1998, has been translated into 37 languages. Essentially it's a motivational business parable and there have been over 28 million copies of the book sold. So, so what does that tell us? It tells us that number one, change happens. Change happens. If they've sold 28 million copies of the book, clearly change is happening. And number two, it also tells us that people want to know how to deal with change. How do we deal with change when it does happen to us? At least 28 million people want to know the answer to that question. Fortunately, there is another best-selling book that has sold more than 28 million copies that also tells us how to deal with change. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning digging into that book so that we can learn how to deal with the changes in our lives, whether it's changes that are going on in our church, in our lives, in our health, in our society, in politics, really doesn't matter. Change happens. How do we deal with it? Somebody once said that the only constant in life is change. You can expect that change is going to happen. But when change is happening around us, it's important to, uh, to recognize something that doesn't change. And that's found in Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 6. In Malachi 3 verse number 6, it says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So in a world that is changing, if you are going through some stressful times because of change, because you have not been able to adapt to something that's going on or you're worried about something that's going to take place, remember that in the midst of change, God is a constant. God does not change. Life changes, culture changes, but truth remains forever constant. Now, why does change take place? Uh, it depends. Sometimes changes come to us from the outside and we don't have much to say or that we can do about them. 
But sometimes we desire change from the inside. Change often results from dissatisfaction. Uh, sometimes we want changes and we work hard to try to accomplish them because we're dissatisfied and we think that maybe if something was different, my life could be better. But if you stop and think about it, are all changes good? If you think back in Old Testament times, God's people existed under what we would call a theocracy. God led them. He was their leader. He was the one who guided his people in one direction or the other, and their responsibility was to follow him. But as God's people looked around at the other cultures around them, they began to realize something. What they realized was that they were different. And they didn't want to be different. They wanted to be like the other cultures around them. And as they looked at what the other cultures had and that they didn't have, they realized that they wanted what the other cultures had. And that was a king. Israel called for a king. Was it a good idea? Well, they said that hindsight is 2020. We can look back on that decision today and say, you know what, that was a poor decision. But they wanted change. They felt dissatisfied. And so they hoped that change would improve things. Unfortunately, things went the other direction. You don't have to go even that far back. You can go back into the New Testament and God's people again were, uh, were dissatisfied. They were not ruling anymore. Now they had the Romans who were over them, telling them what they could and couldn't do, where they could and couldn't go. And they wanted to change again. Once again, they wanted a king. And so when Jesus came along as the Messiah and they saw him feeding people and healing people and helping people and providing for people, well, there was a, an incredible story of, after the miracle of the loaves and the fishes where the people said, this is the person that we need to have leading us. He's the Messiah. He's the one who can put us back where we want to be. And in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So people were dissatisfied. And they said, if we can just change the world around us, then we will be happy. But Jesus realized that there was something bigger, something more significant than just wanting to see the world around them that they were dissatisfied with change. Jesus saw things from heaven's perspective. And if you missed last night's message, make sure you go back and watch that because it's all about looking at things from a different perspective, from heaven's perspective. So before making a change or calling for a change to take place, First of all, we have to make sure that we understand the issues. Do we clearly understand the issues, not just the surface issues, but digging deep to understand what's going on? Now, some of these changes that we often desire to have are maybe personal changes. Some are theological changes. Unfortunately, something that I run across with far too much regularity is people who have been studying the Bible for a long time and they understand it well, and they get it. But when they continue studying the same things and hearing the same things and, and understanding the same things, they can get a little bit bored and they look for something new. They look for something different, something exciting. 
And unfortunately, sometimes those new and different and exciting things can lead them down some theological rabbit holes to some very, very bad destinations. So before you ask for change, before you go looking for change, make sure that you are, make sure that you have your mind in the right place, that you are connected to Christ, because otherwise you can end up in some bad places. Albert Einstein once famously said, if the facts don't fit the theory, change the facts. Well, the truth is facts don't change. They can be misinterpreted very well, but the truth that we have in God's word, it does not change. And if we start going around and trying to change those facts, we find ourselves in bad situations. But what if we're not the originator of the change? What if the change is not up to us? What if change just kind of happens to us? Uh, Richard Marcinko, who is a uh, motivational speaker, a former uh, soldier, says change hurts. It makes people insecure, confused, and angry. People want things to be the same as they've always been because that makes life easier. If you're comfortable, sometimes it's just easiest to stay there, but that may not be the best thing either. So what do we do when change happens to us? I'm going to share with you 10 stages that a person goes through when change happens to them, what we might call an unpleasant change. And again, I don't know what you may be going through right now, but if you're alive, there's a high likelihood that life is changing around you and that your life is being affected by that. So these are 10 stages which a person typically goes through when they are coping with and dealing with stress. And these were compiled by Stephen R. Yarnall, MD, a fellow of the American College of Cardiology. He published this in a, a paper called Unpleasant Changes, What to Do. So here are the 10 stages that a person goes through. And we're gonna talk about how having a biblical perspective, grounding ourselves in the Bible can help us get through change that happens in the world around us. So step number one that Dr. Yarnall uh, explains a person goes through when change happens is denial. Step number one is denial. How can this be happening? Uh, this can't be happening to me. There's no way I didn't plan for this. I didn't expect this. Everything was going so smoothly. It's not true. This cannot be happening. This is typically the first stage the person goes through when some sudden unexpected change happens to them. Now, denial is normal. And to some extent, I suppose one might say it's okay if it lasts for a short period of time. But if this denial goes on for a long period of time, then it can be very, very detrimental to a person and their healing process. So step one is denial. Step number two is anger or blame. Once that unpleasant event happens to a person's life, they start to look for somebody to blame for that event. Whose fault is it? This makes me mad. It's not fair. Why me? And they begin to look for somebody to pin that blame on. Now, again, it's a fairly normal thing for people to go through, but if this goes on for a long time, it can be very detrimental to the person's healing from this change. Step number three, step two is anger or blame. Step three is despair. This stage tends to be characterized by tears, negative, helpless emotions and thoughts, a feeling of emptiness, a feeling of loss. And when a person goes through this third stage of despair, often they begin to separate themselves from other people. They just wanna be alone. They just wanna sob in their own sorrow 
and they feel like nothing matters anymore. That's the third stage, despair. The fourth stage, after a person makes it through the stage of despair, is a stage called perspective. In perspective, in this stage, the individual begins to accept that the change has taken place. They're no, no, no longer caught up in denial. They're not blaming others. They're not angry anymore. The problem begins to be seen in its proper perspective. And although the person may have lost a significant amount in this change that happened in their life, they don't feel like everything is lost. That's the fourth stage, that is perspective. Stage five is a reestablishing of relationships where they distance themselves at first now they're beginning to rebuild those relationships and they begin to connect with people who are meaningful in their lives once again. Step number six is spiritual change. And this is a significant change, a significant step in healing in the process of change. The individual's relationship with the spiritual side of things is strengthened because they see a bigger picture. They've lived through, they have survived this experience, this unpleasant experience, and they grow from it. Step number seven is acceptance. And this stage involves a restoration of self-esteem. They're accepting the consequences of what happened, the boundaries of a new reality, and they're beginning to be more optimistic. Step number eight is humor. Now they can look back at that change that was so devastating to them when it first happened, and they can maybe smile about it. They've got a new perspective now. They're seeing things from a, a different spiritual perspective, and they can look back and they say, wow, I, you know, I don't, I don't know why that overwhelmed me so much. It really wasn't as bad as I thought it was. They can maybe chuckle about it and tell a joke about it now and again. Step number nine is activity and action. Now that the new reality has settled in, now that they can laugh about what happened, now they're able to take action and move their life in a positive direction. And that leads us to step number 10, the last of the 10 steps, and that is new goals. So the person begins to focus on the positive aspects of what has happened now. They may think that uh, things aren't perfect, but I can make good of the new situation. So Dr. Yarnall lists those 10 different stages, and a person may not necessarily go through all 10 of them or through every one of them in order, but they're fairly typical stages that a person goes through when an unexpected change happens in their life. So if we know that change happens, and if we know that people wanna know how to deal with change, and certain books have sold 28 million copies out there to talk about change, and certain MDs have kind of delineated how change takes place and, and what it looks like, how can we approach this from a biblical perspective? So I wanna walk through several steps that we can take in how to make the most of change. The first step is to anticipate change. Step number one is to anticipate change. If you have a Bible with you, turn over to the book of Matthew. We're gonna to go to Matthew chapter 24. We're looking at anticipating change to make the most of change that happens in our lives. So we're going to Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to look at verse number 25. And you might keep a little finger a marker or a finger here in Matthew 24, because we're going to come back to it in just a little bit. Matthew 24, I think most of us recognize, is a very significant prophetic chapter. 
In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells us some of the things that are going to be happening in the world just before he comes back. And a lot of that involves change. But what Jesus says in verse number 25 is significant. He says, see, I have told you beforehand. Now, you probably remember some of the things that Jesus said would happen just before he comes back. He said there would be wars and rumors of wars. There would be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. There would be false Christs and false prophets. He said all things, these things are going to happen. And yet he says the end is not yet. These are the beginning of sorrows. In other words, you're going to see all these things happening in the world. But as, he, as we get closer and closer to Christ's return, we're going to see an increasing number of these things. And we're going to see an increasing intensity of these things. But what Jesus says here in verse number 25, we don't want to miss. Jesus says, behold or see, I have told you beforehand. So step number one in making the most of change, how to prepare for change, is to anticipate it. Know that change is going to happen. If you are alive, if you are breathing, if you have a heartbeat, then change is going to take place in your life. Some of those changes are going to be positive changes, and some of them you can expect are going to be negative changes. But regardless of whether things go positive or negative in health, in politics, in relationships, change is going to happen. So step number one is to anticipate that change. Know that change is coming. Step number two is to prepare for that change. Let's flip over just a page or two to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to begin in verse number six. Now, just to give a little bit of background here, through Jesus' ministry, he knew where his life was headed. He knew his Bible a whole lot better than you know yours or I know mine. And he knew his place in the prophetic picture of scripture. He knew that he was the Messiah. He knew that he was going to be fulfilling the prophecies throughout the Old Testament about what would happen to the Messiah. So he knew that some unpleasant things were going to be taking place in his life. And he made it a point to tell his followers, to tell the apostles, that things are not going to go the way that you expect them to go. I'm not going to establish myself as an earthly king. He said, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. You're going to turn your back on me. They didn't want to hear those things. They were content with, with the view of reality that they had constructed for themselves. And Jesus tried to explain to them that unpleasant change was coming, but they were not interested in hearing it. They developed their own facts based on their own viewpoint. But there was someone who understood what Jesus was trying to say. And so we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse number six. It says, and when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have with you always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. 
Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus was trying to help them understand that his earthly ministry was going to come to an end very, very soon. She understood it, and she was anointing his body for burial. Incidentally, that gift was a very powerful, very significant gift for Jesus, because from that point forward, as he was beginning to go through the, uh, the rejection by his disciples, being beaten, being spit upon, being whipped, uh, being abandoned, being nailed to the cross, that fragrant oil that she poured on him that night, that fragrance stayed with him through that ordeal and gave him encouragement that what he was going through was going to be worth it. So a powerful gift, a significant gift that she gave him that gave him some encouragement when everybody else turned away, when everybody else left him. So step number two is to prepare for the change. That woman was preparing Jesus for the change that was going to take place in his ministry. You can prepare for changes that are going to take place in your life as well. And we're going to talk about some of those changes here before we finish up this morning. But if you know change is coming, first of all, step number one, you'll remember, was to anticipate the change. Know that change is going to come. Step number two, as much as is possible, prepare for that change. If you know that there are some spiritual challenges that are coming in the future, make sure that you're studied up. Make sure that you're spending time in the Bible. Make sure that you are spending time in prayer with God. Make sure that you are training yourself to allow his will to be done in your life rather than your own will. Let yourself be guided by his eye, the Bible says. So we don't necessarily have to be looking for a sign Jesus said an evil, evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. He's given us plenty of signs that things that, that change is coming. In fact, that change is here. We're living in the midst of change. So know that change is coming. Anticipate it. Prepare for that change. Do what you can to get yourself ready for the change that you know is coming. And step number three is to react to the change. Over in the book of John, John chapter 3, and flip over there very quickly. John chapter 3. Now, when I say John chapter 3, you're probably thinking, oh, that sounds like a very familiar, uh, familiar section of the Bible because the most famous, most frequently quoted verse in the Bible is found in John chapter 3. Of course, that's John 3.16. And this, of course, is the story of Nicodemus. When we find Nicodemus interacting with Jesus here in John chapter 3, it says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This is verse number one, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second a second time into his mother's womb? And be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then we enter into a beautiful passage where Jesus explains to this leader of the Jews, this spiritual leader, what, what genuine religion is all about. 
what spirituality is re really all about, what faith is really all about. Now, at this point in Nicodemus' life, he wasn't quite ready to openly and completely accept everything that Jesus had to say and everything that Jesus was. It took him some time, but as he watched Jesus' ministry, as he saw what Jesus did, as he listened to Jesus' words, as who Jesus was began to dawn on Nicodemus, he began to react to that change. He saw change taking place in the world, significant change on a spiritual level, significant change to what he was familiar with in Judaism. He was seeing the fulfillment of prophecy happening before his eyes, and he began to react to that change. After the course of three and a half years came to an end, and Jesus was crucified, and his body was lifted up on the cross, when he died, shortly after that, Nicodemus was, was very pleased, very happy, very bold to, to uh, express his faith in Jesus. And his influence and his money and his power became significant in the spread of the gospel in the early days of Christianity. So what did Nicodemus do? He reacted to that change. When the change took place, he didn't just cover his eyes. He did not blind himself to the change. He didn't head the other direction. He recognized it for what it was and that God had brought that change as a gift to him and really to the entire world. So the first step in how to deal with change, how to make the most of change, is to anticipate that change. The second step is to prepare for that change. The third step is to react to the change that comes into your life. So how do we respond to this, uh, to this call to change? I wanna take a look at a story from the Old Testament now. And again, keep a finger or marker over in Matthew. We're gonna come back yet over there. But I wanna go to the book of Daniel. And we're going to go to Daniel chapter four. Daniel chapter four. Again, Daniel is a, a very significant prophetic book in the Bible. Lots of prophecies in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel chapter 11, uh, 9 as well. But there are a lot of stories in the book of Daniel that are significant as well. The prophecies in the book of Daniel, by and large, tell us when the last days are going to arrive. And if you've spent any time studying the book of Daniel, you've likely gone through some of those. Daniel 2 uh, one of the most basic prophecies in the Bible is still one of my favorites. It, it just undergirds the authority of scripture so beautifully. The prophecies in the book of Daniel tell us when the last days are going to arrive, but the stories in the book of Daniel tell us how to live in the last days. There's no question looking at the world around us that we are living in the last days today. So we know the last days have arrived, but the question then becomes, how do we live in the last days? When we find ourselves living in those times, what do we do to not just survive in those times, but thrive in those times? And there's a significant story in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, that gives us some idea of how to make the most of change. It's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, most of the book of Daniel was, was written by Daniel, but the book of, ne the book of Daniel chapter 4 was written by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, when we first come across him, is not, a, not what you might call a, a sterling example of what it is to be a Christian or a follower of God. In fact, he was what we would 
very definitely call a heathen. But the impact that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made on his life in time bore fruit. We get to Daniel chapter 4, and in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by a dream that he has, and he does what he's done before, and that is call in his wise men to help him with the dream. Uh, they're not very good at doing that, unfortunately. But this dream is a significant one that tells the story of what his future is going to be like. He is ruling the essentially the known world. He's at the top of his game, but something has crept in. In fact, it's probably been there for a while at this point that's going to cause a downfall in his life, and that something is called pride. It's the same thing that arose in Lucifer's heart and caused his problems and ultimately all of our problems as well. Pride is just as much an issue that we face today as what Nebuchadnezzar faced 2,500 years ago. Pride crept up in his heart, and he said, is not this great Babylon that I have built? After Daniel warned him about uh, making sure that he should be right with God and the importance of humility, uh, he didn't heed the warning very well. Is not this great Babylon that I have built? When those words escaped his lips, well, the judgment of God fell upon him. And he ended up spending a number of years wandering around the fields, around the castle there in Babylon, uh, eating the grass with his hair matted, his fingernails uh, growing long like bird's claws, and essentially living apart from humanity. But something happened that brought him back. And we're going to take a look at that in verse number 34. In verse 34, it says, And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? It is important for us to realize living in a time of significant change that we need to submit our will to God's will to remember that he is the one who is in charge. He is the one who is in control. He is the one who is guiding the stream of history. And nothing happens in your life or in my life unless God permits it to happen. That means that everything that you are going through, everything that I am going through, is something that God has permitted to happen to us. In other words, he has a bigger purpose for that challenging time that you may be facing. And if you're not facing something right now, if things are going pretty well right now, then you can expect that there are going to be some significant changes that take place in your life in the future. And if you enter into those changes saying, oh, woe is me, why is this happening? This can't be happening. This isn't God's will. God is permitting it to happen. The question then remains, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond to it? Something what we might call negative happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life. But why did it happen? Because God had a bigger purpose. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to understand something, and it took him several years to get it through his brain, through his, his skull, if you will, but eventually he figured it out. 
And we read in verses 36 and 37, after he made this, uh, this beautiful, <clears throat> uh, what would we call it, understanding of who God is. In verse 36, it says, and at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Then verse 37, the cap of this chapter, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down, or I believe the King James says, to abase. Nebuchadnezzar got it. He realized why that perceived negative thing had happened to him. It was for his betterment. It was for his growth. And if we want to get right down to it, it was for his salvation. The things that happen to us in our lives that we sometimes see as negative God is permitting to happen to us for our salvation. If we will simply embrace them and accept them as being permitted by God and say, Lord, how can I make the most of this situation now? The truth is, change is coming. Jesus knew that in the Garden of Gethsemane. You may remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the sins of the world were being placed upon his shoulders, as I mentioned last night, sin separates us from God. He was taking the sins of the world on his shoulders. He was being separated from God. And he said, nevertheless, he said, take this cup from me. If it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus submitted his will to the will of the Father. And he said, I want your will to be done in my life. We need to learn to do exactly the same thing. As I mentioned before, change is coming. Let's turn back over to Matthew chapter 24. If you left your finger there, it'll make it very easy for you to get there. If you didn't, hopefully you can still find it fairly quickly. We are looking now at Matthew chapter 24, and we are going to start in verse number four. Matthew chapter 24 and verse number four. The disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, what's going to be the sign of his coming and of the end of the world, Jesus says there's going to be some things happening, some changes taking place, that when you see these things coming, you'll know that my return is near. Not to get all wound up and focused on the changes, but to look beyond the changes to what Jesus says the real event is going to be. So in verse number four, it says, and Jesus answered, and he said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. He says there are going to be people who are claiming to be Christ, claiming to be prophets who are going to be coming. We see that today already. Verse 6, he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I don't think we've seen the last of wars on this planet. Uh, we're seeing a bit of a lull right now, but we can expect that sooner or later that lull is going to come to an end and things are going to pick up once again. Verse number seven, he says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Right now, again, things to be seem to be in a little bit of a slump, and people are saying, oh, wonderful things are happening in the Middle East. Well, praise the Lord for that, but we can expect before too long things are going to go sideways again. If it's in the Middle East, 
it'll be there. If it's someplace else, it'll be there. Maybe it'll be in Africa. There's no telling where it's going to be, but things are going to ramp up again, just as they have, and they're going to be worse than what we're seeing today. In verse number eight, Jesus says, well, let me read verse seven again, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. I think the one that we're mostly focused on right now is probably the pestilences part. We haven't seen the last of COVID-19. Uh, I don't know whether we're going to start calling it COVID-20, depending on if there's some new strain that comes up. Who knows? They're talking about a second wave happening in different parts of the world. We're not coming out of this thing quite yet. By the grace of God, we're seeing a little lull right now. We'll see what happens in the future. But even if once we get past COVID-19, there are going to be other things that come. So what are we going to do then? Is it going to be another version of Ebola, mad cow, uh, bird flu, or something entirely new? Jesus says change is coming. Get ready for it. Then he says in verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then he says they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Here in the U.S. right now, I don't know that I'd say that Christians are particularly persecuted. They may be laughed at. They may be mocked for their beliefs. There are a lot of people who think that Christianity is just kind of a, uh, a soothing balm for people who don't know how to deal with the stresses of real life. And so they grasp a hold of uh, fanciful stories and so forth. But persecution, genuine persecution is coming. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and will deceive many. You know, back to verse number 10 for just a second. It says that there's going to be many who are going to betray one another and will hate one another. You know, we wondered how that could happen. But I think in the course of the last six months, we've at least seen a glimmer of how that could happen. In different places around the world, people are turning in their neighbors who they believe have the coronavirus. So one day, the coronavirus is essentially going to be biblical Christianity, and neighbors are going to be turning one another in based upon their beliefs and their practices. That day is coming. Jesus says, I'm warning you beforehand. Remember verse 25, behold, I am telling you beforehand so that when it takes place, you're not going to be surprised. He says in verse number 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. If we look at a lot of the social unrest that's going on in the world today, the political tensions that are going on, I think it's safe to say that the love of many has grown cold. We, it seems, have very little patience for those who believe or think or feel or vote differently than we do. Jesus says the love of many is going to grow cold. I think we're seeing glimmers of that right now. Verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And then the good news here, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. You know, a lot of people wondered, how is the gospel going to spread when the churches have been shut down, when we can't gather together for worship? 
I believe strongly in the importance of gathering together for worship. The Bible says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, and especially as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. But what this has done is given us an opportunity to explore some digital means of sharing the gospel that we really hadn't delved into significantly before that. And so what the devil has meant for evil, God has turned to good by his grace. The gospel going to all the world. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And verse 20, a verse that's significant for you and for me, pray that your flight not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So if you think we're going through change right now, and that change is unpleasant, the change that's going to take place between now and when Jesus comes back is going to make this look like child's play. So it's going to be important for us to learn how to make the most of the change that's coming so that we end up on top, so that we end up, as it were, on the winning team. Verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So Jesus goes through a long laundry list of all the things that are going to be taking place just before he comes back. So how can we look beyond these things and focus on what's really important? Turn with me over to the book of John, John chapter 14. John chapter 14, just to keep things in perspective. John chapter 14, we're going to look at verses one through three. John chapter 14, verses one through three. Jesus says here, let not your heart be troubled. When you see things happening in your life, change, unpleasant change happening in your life, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus says, look beyond the current challenges in life. Look beyond the change that is coming and focus on eternal things. In other words, lift your gaze. You're looking too much horizontally. Lift vertically, look vertically, and you're going to see things from a different perspective. So what are some things that we can do to, uh, to deal with change in our lives? The first thing that we can do is to anticipate that change. Know that the change is coming. The second is to prepare for the change. Do practical things that can help you be prepared for the change that you have anticipated and that you know is coming. Number three, react to the change, just as Nicodemus reacted to the changes that were happening in his life and to his society and his reality. And another thing that we can do is to keep our focus where it needs to be, not on the things that are immediately happening to us, but keep your focus on the future. Keep your focus lifted, your gaze lifted on eternal things 
and not on temporal things. So there are some significant things that are going to be taking place in the world. Some things we're not going to have much ability to change. They're just going to change around us and we have to react to them. Some things we can, some changes we can affect. We can help other people get to know Jesus so that they can place their faith and their trust in him. We can share our faith, even in the midst of trials and tribulations. There's a story that took place, took place in Germany many, many years ago. And if, uh, for those of you who were here with me last night, uh, you know that I enjoy stories. And one type of story that I enjoy many, more than any other type of story is a true story. And this happens to be another one of those true stories. It happened to a man by the name of Carl Benz. Now you may be familiar with the name of Benz because he named his car the Mercedes Benz and he named it after his daughter Mercedes. But back in 1886, he drove his very first automobile, a horseless carriage, if you will, through the streets of Munich, Germany. It was brand new. Nobody had seen anything like it before. They were used to horses and carts, horses and carriages, or just riding horses to get from point A to point B. But this new mode of transportation was not, uh, not particularly well liked by the citizens of Munich because it was noisy, it scared the children, it scared the horses. And so the administration of the city being pressured by the citizens established a speed limit. They established a speed limit inside the city of Munich to dissuade people from getting automobiles, from purchasing cars. The speed limit that they established inside the city of Munich, Germany was three and a half miles per hour. If you wanted to drive a car, if you had one, three and a half miles an hour was the fastest that you could drive it. But they were a little more lenient if you got outside the city limits, then you were permitted to drive at seven miles an hour. Now, Carl Benz knew that if his car could only be driven three and a half miles an hour, nobody would ever buy one. And so he came up with an idea. He invited the mayor of Munich to go on a trip with him to accompany him on a ride in his car, in his automobile. But he had a plan. He arranged before he picked up the mayor to have a milkman with his cart, his horse and cart with all the milk bottles stationed by the side of the street at a particular location. And then when Benz and the mayor drove by the milkman, the milkman whipped up his old horse to pass the car with Benz and the mayor in it. And as the milkman passed that car, he turned around and he thumbed his nose at the mayor and Benz and gave, how shall I say this? He blew a raspberry. I think most of you know what it means to blow a raspberry. For those of you who don't, you can Google it and figure it out. So as Benz and the mayor passed the milkman, he got his cart and his horse going. He whipped up the old horse into a trot, passed the mayor and Benz and blew a raspberry at them. That infuriated the mayor. And the mayor ordered Benz to pass that milkman. And Benz shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I'd love to, but there's a three and a half mile an hour speed limit here within the city limits of Munich, so I'm afraid I can't. Well, it wasn't long before the speed limit changed. And as you know, 
Mercedes-Benz has sold a lot more cars since 1886. So there are some things that we can change. I want to encourage you, the things that you can change for the better, the things that you can change to spread the gospel around the world, do what you can to change those things. The things in your life where change happens to you, keep focused beyond the things that you cannot change to what is coming and make the most of the changes that do take place in your life. Regardless of how uncomfortable and unpleasant those changes may be, I want you to remember Hebrews 13, verse 8. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Connect with Jesus. Focus on him. And regardless of what happens in your life, he will get you through. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for giving us time together this morning to realize that change happens, change takes place, and nothing happens without you permitting it to happen. Help us to focus in the right direction. Help us to realize that beyond the unpleasant changes in this life, there is an eternity ahead, an eternity of joy and happiness and communion with you. May we focus our minds on that time to see us through the times ahead. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.